Before we get into Genesis chapter 16, um, I wanted to discuss a few things, and I think it's profitable for all of us because these things all add up. I find, and I'm going to mention this, that you know, national Israel is a type of the church, and national Israel was an absolute mess, as you are well aware of if you've read your Bible. The church today, I think, is a mess too, and a lot of it has to do with sloppy language and sloppy doctrine, sloppy theology, and these sloppy things add up. You know, the Lord says that as you study and learn, as you go forward and as you go backwards, uh, he says this in Isaiah, that it's line upon line, um, line upon line, here a little, there a little, you know, a little scripture here, a little scripture there, and, um, and you can grow thereby. But in the same way, uh, you, the truth can, can go backwards in terms of what you understand, because one lie begets another one, one false uh, doctrine builds on another one. And indeed, in the Catholic Church, the um, idolatrous nature in which they hold Mary, Mariology is a study in and of itself, and the the Pope will make a decree about one thing, and then they'll build on that lie, and then the next thing you know, you've got Mary um, worshipped like a god. She's a co-mediatrix and a co-redemptrix in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which of course is not true. So one lie begets another. So I've got three things that we've talked about recently. Two of them are a review, and one of them came up last uh, fellowship, and so I want to talk about all of those things. And the first one was, and I talked about this last week, is that Christ did not take on the nature of man. We've talked about that. Well, people say that Christ took on the nature of man. He did not take on the nature of man. Man by nature is a sinner and not so Christ. Scripture says that he did no sin, he knew no sin, and that in him is no sin. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Though he was made in the, quote, likeness of sinful flesh, he was ever without sin and in perfect compliance to the law under which he was made when he was manifest in flesh, not in the flesh, but in flesh. If you get out your inner linear, and that brings up another point, our deacon had mentioned that he had read from the inner linear a couple of weeks ago, there are different interlinears. You've got to read from the proper interlinear, the, the Texas Recepticus interlinear. He was not manifest in the flesh, but rather manifest in flesh. And the King James, as do other Bibles, put in the personal or the uh, personal article the, which is not in the Greek in certain places when it's describing Christ. So there's a distinction that God makes in his word about Christ. Now, the exception to this, of course, is when God made him sin by imputing our sin to his account that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ was ever subject to the law in every context of it and never violated it in any of his precepts. So though he was ever obedient to his provisions and his requirements, he suffered the wrath of God according to its demands as though he had not been obedient. So to suggest that Christ took on the nature of man denigrates his character and his nature. It implies that he should suffer the consequences of original sin, as all unregenerate men born in Adam do and should do, having been in the loins of Adam when he sinned. Well, Christ Jesus, having been born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Ghost, was not in the loins of Adam when he sinned, and therefore it is properly said that he knew no sin, and in him was no sin. So we need to keep that straight lest we denigrate the character and nature of Christ. Now, second thing we've talked about recently comes from John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. I'll read that. 
John 8, 31 and 32. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, conditional statement, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Make you free. Now the Greek word that's in there that's translated as make free appears seven times total in the New Testament. It is translated make free six of seven times. One time it is translated as delivered. Other Bibles translate it as set free. And so I want to make a distinction here. In Romans 8.21 is the one place it's, it's translated as delivered, but the principle you can see still applies there. In Romans 8.21 it says, because the creature itself also shall be delivered, that's the word translated as make free elsewhere, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, they are taken from one place and taken to another place. They are not just simply set free, but they're taken from one place to another. They are delivered. Now, you recall that I'd given you several examples in the scriptures where we see that that is true. Lot was an, as an example of that. He was made free. God grabbed him and dragged his dragged him out of <laughs> dragged him out of uh, Sodom and made him free. Um, the Apostle Peter, we see in Acts chapter 5, 19, says that he was in prison. The apostles were in the prison. It says, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and didn't set them free. It says he opened the prison doors and brought them forth. Didn't just kick open the door and set him free, but made him free. Acts chapter 12, same thing. The angel of the Lord comes to Peter. He uh, makes his chains fall off of him, and then he leads him out through three doors, three separate doors, three separate wards, and takes him out into the city. Again, he wasn't set free. He was made free. Paul and Silas in Acts 16, 23, while they were in the Philippian jail, we know that there was a great earthquake. All the doors were opened up, and the stocks, which he and Silas were held in bondage, were broken open. And what happened? Nobody went anywhere. They all stayed in there until the um, Roman guard came and got them and then brought him out to his house. So again, they were led free. Whenever Paul is taken from one prison to another, he's, that very thing happens. He's simply not set free. Do you remember when he was up in Jerusalem, having been imprisoned during the ride of the temple? The uh, Roman um, captain got Paul because his life was in danger and led him from one prison to another, led him down to Caesarea with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. So... He was made free from that and taken to another place. And that's what we should appreciate with respect to being made free. Christ makes us free. He takes us from one place, from another. He takes us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the dominion of Satan to the glorious light and eternal presence of Christ. If you are made free, you stay free. Made free, stayed free. Now, the third one came up last week, and I didn't comment on it while we were having the conversation because I think it's imprudent for me, and every one of us should do this. You need to go back and study the Scripture again and see if the position that you hold is still valid. Maybe you've grown in your appreciation of the Bible, and you hold now something a little bit different than what you held before. But this has to do with what it means to be backslidden. Now, this is a term commonly used by Christians to describe the habitually sinful behavior of people that they want to think are Christians. They use it to describe people they want to think are Christian, people that were raised in Christian families. 
I've heard many times from, quote, Christian parents describing their, quote, baptized and, quote, Christian confessing children who yet live in sin and walk according to the course of this world, having their conversation in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of their mind. These kids were raised in a, quote, Christian household. They grew up, they're behaving themselves. This happened with my kids. I baptized them both. They made professions of faith. Um, and then they go out and live not the way I brought them up to live. Now, this doesn't describe my children, but it describes other children that I've seen. So I want to be clear on that because I don't want my kids calling me up and saying, did you imply that I did these things? That is not true of my kids, but it is true of others. I have seen and spoken with the parents. After they grow up, they leave home, and then they start to run with the world. They go out and drink frequently. They get drunk. They might even live with their girlfriend or their boyfriend or come out as homosexuals and engage in homosexual relationships. I've seen that in the Christian church, and these parents say their kids are but backslidden. That's how they pass it off. Well, they're just backslidden. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> what these people are doing is they are taking an Old Testament term that applies, it's only in the Old Testament, it's an Old Testament term that applies to someone who is, quote, self-righteous and turned away from the ordinance of God, and they apply it to someone they think um, possesses the righteousness of God by faith. So they're taking a term that applies to self-righteous people that have turned from the ordinances of God, and they're applying it to somebody they think who by faith possesses the righteousness of God. The word appears many times in the Old Testament describing the conduct in the heart of national Israel, the consequences of which result in their estrangement or divorce from God and their destruction. They are still, national Israel is still backslidden to this day, and they are a type of the outward, quote, Christian church. In Proverbs 1.32, I'm just going to show you a couple places where the word is used. It appears several times, and every time it's in a negative context with respect to what national Israel is doing. Proverbs 1.32 says, For the turning away, that's the same word, Hebrew word for backslide, for the turning away of the simple shall slay them. Turning of the way shall slay them. In other words, the act of turning away, the act of backsliding will slay you. You will perish turning away from God. If you turn from God, you will perish. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore, and see that it is an evil and thing, and bitter, that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. So backslide, and you have forsaken the Lord. You do not have a relationship with him. You have no reverence of him. Now, this is Christianity 101, and this is why these kind of things are important. A Christian cannot forsake the Lord. God cannot forsake himself. If Christ be in you, you cannot forsake God. God cannot deny himself. The wisdom, witness, and testimony of God in you will not deny Christ, will not deny God. You will have a relationship with him no matter how... Um, as strange you may feel, you are not, in fact, estranged from the Lord. You are one with him. Now, Jeremiah 3.8 says, And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. 
Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So the Lord is teaching us here that in their backsliding, national Israel has committed spiritual adultery. And what is the penalty for adultery? It's death. They are under the law and they are subject to it and all of its provisions. Now, keep in mind that God has saved a remnant for himself that have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says that in 1 Kings 19.18, which the Lord makes reference to again in Romans chapter 11, verse 8. Same thing is true for the church today. Again, I've made the comment that national Israel is a type of the church. They're both a mess, but God has a remnant in both, had a remnant in national Israel, and he has a remnant in the church today. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 5, it says, Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. So he's telling us here that national Israel backslides perpetually. They refuse to return to God. So again, they are estranged and separated from God. There is no relationship there. You know, the Lord says that. Though you praise me with your lips, your hearts be far from me. The relationship is manifest, would have been manifest in their heart. Now, in spite of these things about what God is saying about Israel, he brings forth two promises in the book of Hosea. In Hosea, verse 4.16, he says, For Israel slideth as a backsliding heifer. So imagine yourself, a heifer with their hoofs, climbing a sand dune, and you can see how they will go up and their hoofs don't get any traction and they can't go up there. The original moonwalkers, that was moonwalk that was made famous by Michael Jackson. Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Well, what does it mean to be fed? It means to get manna from heaven. What is a large place? That would be Christ. There's a reference here, uh, an allusion to um, Christ and the gospel. We'll feed. This is something that will take place in the future. We'll feed. God will deal with this issue, and he'll heal them. Hosea 14.4, he says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. So, clearly... Backsliding is a condition from which a person cannot extricate themselves. They must be healed from it. They have to be made free. If they are but set free, which God did many times in the Old Testament, you know, that's a pattern in the book of Judges is they, um, they have an outward relationship with the Lord and then they uh, slip into idolatry. So he brings in somebody to... Um, overcome them, somebody to persecute them, somebody to put them in a bondage, and then he sends a deliverer, and they thank God for it, and then they go back again. That pattern over and over and over again. He sets them free multiple times, and they fall back into sin and idolatry time after time after time. They continue to backslide. They perpetually backslide. Now, so how does God heal their backsliding and free them and feed them in a large place, making them free. And who does he do this to? Well, he heals them and he feeds them by giving them a new heart, a heart that loves God and a heart that desires to be obedient to God and desires the things of God. That's how he heals them. He gives them a new heart. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 36, which I don't think anybody would apply to all of national Israel, they would apply it to the, the elect. And in like manner, he's going to heal the elect of backsliding. So in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, he says, For I will make 
For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols and I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. They will be indwelled by God and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. They are not going to backslide once this takes place. So in other words, backsliding is healed through regeneration. So here again, we have to appreciate what's written in Romans chapter 9, where the Lord tells us that they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they children. So National Israel has not been healed of backsliding for they don't worship the God, they don't worship God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way to the Father. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. They are still backsliding because they still reject Christ. So, if you have been regenerated and therefore healed of backsliding, you are the spiritual Israel in view in these promises here. You are the remnant that will not bow the knee to Baal. Now, the New Testament, now we're going to drag this into the New Testament. The New Testament equivalent of the word to backsliding can be found in 2 Thessalonians. It talks about there's going to come a great falling away. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. This is the day of the Lord. Except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Well, who falls away? The people that fall away are those who were never regenerated, just as though that backslide were people that were never regenerated. You can't fall away from God when you are kept by Christ. You can't backslide from God if you are kept by Christ. That's the parallel here. So when that day comes and you see people fall away, people stop going to church, people stop worshiping, don't think in your head, don't let them think in their head, well, they're Christians, because they're not. They're falling away because they never were in Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. Fall away from God, and it's manifest that you are not a Christian. You do not have Christ in your heart. He has not kept you. So, again, we see the similarities here, and so we should not um, let, this, um, let language like this creep into our language so that we can appreciate what somebody is and what they are doing and where they really are in a spiritual context. People that backslide or fall away were never part of the body of Christ. So, what do Christians do if they don't backslide or fall away? Because we see them stumble in sin all the time. We have all done that. When they stumble in sin, what does the Lord do? He picks them up, either by pricking their heart because the Holy Ghost is within them and they grieve the Holy Spirit when they sin. So he pricks their heart, convicts them of their sin, brings them along the way, or he'll chasten them. And the Lord says that whom he chasteneth, he loves so if he's chastening somebody for their sin, it's a sign of his love. It's a sign of a relationship. He moves them along. And if none of that um, is effective, he will frankly uh, remove them from the earth. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He will remove them altogether from the earth and bring them home. So 
Let's not apply the word backslide to a Christian. If we do that, we're undermining the character of God. He said he would heal them, and you were saying that he did not do what he said he would do. So the truth is, they are not Christians, so let's call a spade a spade, and don't let these people think that their kids who live like hell are Christians when they're not. They need to get on their knees and pray that God will yet save their backslidden kids and reveal to them, reveal to the parents, Christ's holy nature and his character. So let's put that to bed and let's move forward now into Genesis chapter 16. But think upon those things because we're going to pull it into our Genesis 16 today. You're going to see that that issue of being made free will come up. So let's open our Bibles now and read Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath estranged me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened unto the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord's judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence comest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren." And she called the name of, uh, of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Berlehorai. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar spake, excuse me, and Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his name, his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word to us, that we might see the glorious gospel, and that thou art the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of our faith, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, this morning I want to look at some big picture stuff. Um, I want us to appreciate the beauty 
of how God has set this in the scripture for us and how he has orchestrated the lives of these people to teach us basic biblical truths that appear elsewhere in the Bible. Our deacon read for us portions of Galatians this morning, so the Lord has told us quite clearly their lives are an allegory of two covenants. And this we have to keep in mind as we're going through this whole section now here in Genesis. Now, back in Genesis chapter 15, we saw that the various forms of the typical sacrifices were set before us. The sin offering, the trespass offering, and this offering of of ignorance, that we would sin through ignorance. All of that was covered in Genesis 15. We covered the principle of God removing people from the land due to sin and how this manifests itself in the two different covenants, the conditional covenant to national Israel and the unconditional everlasting covenant from our perspective, that applies to the elect of God, which we are the beneficiaries of. And we saw how this applied to Christ as well. And it's important, as I said, that Christ subjected himself. He was made of a woman, made under the law, and how he filled all of the provisions of it. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, the Lord sets this principle right in front of us. He says, For the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it. But the wicked shall be cut off from the earth, and the transgressors shall be rooted out of it. And we see that principle all through Scripture, particularly as it's applied to national Israel, where they fall into sin and God removes them from the land. We also saw in Genesis 15 that justification or righteousness is by faith. So moving forward from that understanding that justification is by faith, We can appreciate Abram's walk. He's set before us as an example of faith. He's set before us as the man of faith who walks by faith. So we see Abram, one of God's elect, was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees, a call to which he was obedient. And by faith, it says in Hebrews 11, 9, that he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now we get to Genesis chapter 16 here, and we see Abram stumble in sin. We see Abram, having begun by faith, justified by faith, do what Christians often do, and that is they fail to wait upon God and move in their flesh to fulfill the promises of God. So our deacon read Galatians chapter 3 and 4 portions of it. And so we see that here where the Lord says in Galatians 3, 3, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, you are not made perfect by the flesh. So again, in uh, Galatians chapter 4, the Lord says that Sarah and Hagar allegorically are the two covenants. The one, Sarah, represents grace, the covenant of grace, and Hagar represents the law, the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai. I'll read that, verses 21 and 25 of Galatians 4 again, because you need to have this understanding. This is God's commentary on what's happened in Genesis 16. It's his commentary. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. 
one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and in bondage with her children. So Sarah represents grace, the promises of God fulfilled or received by faith. Scripture says in Romans 3.20, quote, By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Then Scripture asks the question, again, I just read that, Galatians 3.3, Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? The answer is obviously no. We are not made perfect by the flesh, and neither was Abram. Nevertheless, Christians will stumble in this area, which we see Abram do. Abram, at the suggestion of his wife, is going to move into the flesh, endeavoring to fulfill God's promise by worldly means. By the flesh, he's going to try to bring forth the promised heir through which all nations shall be blessed and the means and agency of his own justification. He's going to try to bring that forth, the means and agency of his own justification by embracing Hagar, who represents the law, in order to do this. And he's going to fail miserably. The result will be Ishmael, who is a, quote, wild man or wild ass of a man. I'll get to that in a minute. Scripture says that the law was added because of transgressions. Scripture says that law was added because of transgressions. That's Galatians 3.19. And that by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. So I want you to appreciate God orchestrating global events and the lives of people. Where did Hagar come from? Well, she's an Egyptian, and she no doubt came to Abram when he went down into Egypt and denied his wife. She was added because of his transgression. Denial of his wife was a sin. Passing Sarah off as his sister, though technically true, was intended to mislead Pharaoh, and it's therefore it's a lie and a sin. Through Hagar comes Ishmael, and with him the knowledge of sin. Ishmael is a manifestation of Abram's lie and his failure to trust God and wait upon him who promised. Scripture tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, and further, that the works of the flesh include adultery. We see all of this take place in Abram's life, and so we have him again embracing Hagar, and then we have the result is Ishmael. So the sin that he has committed, the knowledge of his sin, is before his face. So, It is no surprising, as we look in the scriptures, that the Lord is allegorically teaching us here in terms of the lives of these two women that Ishmael is the product of the flesh and the law. And then verse 12 says that he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now, if you look at the Hebrew word for Ishmael, it's wild ass man, wild ass man, and you contrast that with the, quote, flock man. In Ezekiel 36, 38, the word is translated flocks of men. It's obviously in context of the elect. We are all sheep men, flock men, um, which, uh, are, um, which have for our shepherd the great shepherd, which is Christ. Now, it says he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. He is ever the reminder or knowledge of Abram's sin. And I want us to appreciate this. 
because of this, there will never be peace in the Middle East. There will never be peace in the Middle East. They can send all the ambassadors and emissaries and make whatever concessions they want. There's never going to be peace in the Middle East because God has said there won't be peace in the Middle East because of what Abram did. It will never bear fruit. When the flesh embraces the law, it never bears fruit. So after Abram does this, what does God do in terms of the fulfillment of the promised son? Now keep in mind, the scripture tells us this, that Abram has dwelt in the land of Canaan for 10 years awaiting the fulfillment of God's promise. So I think that we can empathize and even sympathize with him in terms of what he did. He's been waiting 10 years for the uh, fulfillment of the promise. Now, in Romans 4.13 tells us that the promise that Abraham should be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise is not going to be fulfilled through the law. It's not going to be fulfilled through Hagar, but rather through the righteousness and faith. So he's been there 10 years. What does God do? He waits another 14 years before Sarah conceives. God waits for Abram to be as good as dead. That's what Hebrews eleven twelve tells us. He waits until Abram is as good as dead before Sarah can conceive by him, making it crystal clear to Abram and everybody else that Isaac is indeed the child of promise and that his conception and birth is miraculous, that he is the child of faith through which cometh righteousness. Abram is going to learn not to lean on his own understanding And he's going to learn to acknowledge God in all his ways. And God works the same in us, and it takes a long time. Some of us have to hit the wall multiple times before we learn to look to Christ for all things. That whatever problems and challenges we face in this life, if they are to be overcome, they are to be overcome in and through Christ. Now, it takes us a long time to learn this truth. It takes us a long time to learn that his grace is sufficient for us. It takes us a long time to learn that our strength is made perfect in weakness. It takes us a long time to learn that when we are weak in the flesh and in worldly wisdom, when we are weak, then we are strong. And when we learn that, most gladly will we rather glory in our infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Those are the things that the Lord sets before us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. These are hard things for the saint to learn, and it took Abram 24 years to learn that truth. God waited until he was as good as dead before he allowed Sarah to conceive by him. But if God is going to work mightily through us, we will learn those truths. He will not give his glory to another. And we see that, again, in the pattern of uh, how the Lord worked with Israel. All of the great military victories, and we talked about how Abraham overcame the Chaldeans with, I think, 318 um, men in his house, how we overcame them. Um, We see that all the great victories um, that the Lord granted his people were wrought in him, from Abraham to Moses to Gideon to Samson and the Israelites through their various kings. All of the victories that they won were victories that where Christ was with them. When Christ was not with them, they lost. And so when we think about the greatest victory of all time, the, great, the victory over Satan, the victory over the world, and the victory over sin and death, 
that victory was won by Christ all by himself. We had nothing um, to do with that. In Ephesians, excuse me, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, I'm going to read from that. It says that, Oh, speaking of Christ, who being in the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Other versions take out the word by himself, but we know that it was by himself that he accomplished that. We did not go with him to the cross. Um, We were not with him in the garden when he prayed. We would have fallen asleep as did his disciples. He was by himself when he wrought all of those victories. Now, what happens next in our narrative? Well, Sarah wants to get rid of Hagar. Sarah wants to get rid of the law. And young Christians or immature Christians, people in the church, they want to move into antinomialism where there is no law before the promise of the Son is fulfilled. So what does God have to say about that? There is a glory unto the law, and the law is good if a man use it lawfully. So we read in Galatians 3.19 that the law remains until the seed, which is Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. The law remains until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Galatians 3.23, before faith, which is Christ, before faith came, we were kept under the law. Galatians 3.24, the law is our schoolmaster, teaching us that we are sinners until Christ comes. So we should appreciate that all men are under the law until Christ comes to them. And if Christ does not come to you, well, then you're still under the law and all of its consequences. So here in Genesis 16, what do we see happening? Though Sarah would deal hardly with Hagar, causing her to flee from her, flee from grace, the Lord, the angel of the Lord, which is Christ, sends Hagar back. Where she, Hagar, the law, is to remain until grace, Sarah, delivers the promised seed. Allegorically speaking, they are still under the law and will be until Isaac, who is a type of Christ, So you can see how God is orchestrating all of these events in chapter 16 here to help us appreciate the truths that he sets before us in Romans and in Galatians about the law and our relationship to the law and our relationship to grace. When the promised seed Isaac comes and is weaned, then Hagar is cast out. The law gives way to grace. God tells Abraham, hearken to your wife and cast her out. So how does this end? Well, this ends with a lot of heartache for Abraham. He that was born after the flesh, Ishmael, will be cast out. And we should appreciate that he represents the flesh of Abraham. He's of his flesh. And it's hard for us to let go of our flesh and all of the things that the flesh craves. It is hard to let it go. The Lord teaches us in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And John 6, 63 says, the flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh profits nothing from the process of regeneration. The flesh is going to go to the grave. And so we are admonished in Scripture to crucify the flesh with the affections and lusts thereof. And that is a painfully difficult process to let go of our flesh. So Ishmael, the works of the flesh, will be cast out. And that's a heartache for Abraham when he goes to do that. He will not be heir with Isaac, who is the fruit of the Spirit. 
So as we look at this section of Scripture, we find that God, the author and finisher of our faith, has orchestrated the lives of these people to teach us truths about grace and law, how we are under the law until Christ comes to us, how it is necessary to be patient and wait on the promises of God, and what a world of trouble did Abraham participate, excuse me, precipitate, when he failed to wait upon God's promises. We cause nothing but trouble for ourselves when we move into the flesh and fail to wait on God's promises, when we fail to look to him. Scripture tells us in Jeremiah 17, 7, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. In Lamentations 3, 25 and 26, it says, The Lord is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. To which I say, Amen. Amen.